You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 24th of October 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today for Argentinian citizens, as well as others in South America, the return of the International Monetary Fund, the consequences of austerity and so on and so forth have been too much and they're not taking it anymore. My guests Oscar Juadiola Rivera and Robin Lustig are here to put Argentina's presidential election this weekend into the context of discontent across South America. And we'll be discussing whether the new Da Vinci exhibition at the Louvre is worth the price of admission and the extremely lengthy queue. Plus, our take on LED lighting. Aren't we all at least dimly aware of the negative effects brought on by strip-lit supermarkets? No one feels good in the overlit bluish pool cast by energy-saving bulbs or backlit screens either. Some bright thinking there from Monocle's editorial floor. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Robin Lustig, the author and broadcaster and former host of The World Tonight on Radio 4, and Oscar Juadiola Rivera, Professor of Law at Birkbeck University of London. We will start in Argentina, where voters go to the polls on Sunday to choose governors, a congress, and, if the result is decisive at first time of asking, a president. Where the big gig is concerned, incumbent Maurizio Macri is seeking another go, but if polls are to be believed, he should have at least got some quotes from Movalists. Macri is trailing by some distance Alberto Fernandez, the former cabinet chief during the presidencies of Nesta Kirchner and Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. The latter, by uncanny coincidence, is Fernandez's vice presidential running mate. Um, Oscar, first of all, it's not looking terrifically good for President Macri. Where has it all gone wrong? Well, uh, what has gone wrong for Macri is exactly what is going wrong for, uh, you know, Piñera in Chile and also for Lenin Moreno in Ecuador, among others, which is to say that uh, for Argentinian citizens, as well as uh, others in South America, the return of uh, the International Monetary Fund, the uh, consequences of uh, austerity, and so on and so forth, have uh, been too much, and they're not taking it anymore. So uh, there you go. The pendulum is moving to the left once more. Um, We will talk more later in the news panel about the more widespread discontent across Latin America. But if we look at Argentina particularly, Robin, it is in the grip of another financial crisis. Its economy is in the tank. The currency is in the tank with it. Uh, Inflation is at 50%. 35% of the population is living below the poverty line. But Argentina's economic crisis in recent times have happened on the watches of leaders from all sides of politics. Does it suggest that there are there are deeper problems that nobody's quite figured out how to address. Because it it does seem weird on the surface of it that Argentina is a potentially enormously wealthy and blessed country with an educated population... How, how can you not make it work? Indeed, I think it's a very good question, and I'm not sure there's a very simple answer. I mean, one of the problems, I think, particularly for President Macri, is, is, is the problem of disappointed expectations. He, he came to office with such high hopes from many, many voters. He made promises that he would be able to put things right, and he hasn't been able to do so. And I think the reasons are very complex, but the results are there for all to see. It's not just the poverty rate, as you say, uh, extremely high inflation rate the currency collapsing. Um, Wherever people look, things have gone worse, not got better. 
The difficulty, I think, both for Argentina and, and as you were suggesting, more broadly in the region, is that it, voters really haven't got very many places to turn. They've tried left of centre, they've tried right of centre. Both recipes for economic growth don't seem to have worked. Uh, one of the big problems, I think, and it's not unique to Argentina, is the problem of inequality and also the problem of corruption. People see that politicians not only don't deliver, but they don't deliver while enriching themselves. And that is not a good recipe for re-election. Uh, Oscar, is a vote for Fernandez essentially a vote for a Kirchner restoration? Not necessarily. And I think Kirchner himself, herself understands that, which is why, although <laughs> she's, uh, <laughs> she's the vice like, president... Would you like to stake a large amount of money on that proposition? Absolutely, because uh, <laughs> because uh, uh, those you know listeners who know the story between these two should remember that uh, they uh, used to be at odds with each other. So, in a sense, what you see sort of composition is not just the return of uh, Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. In a sense, there is also self-criticism here. But more than that, we should look at least uh, at another uh, element in this equation. Yes, there is inequality, huge inequality, to start to be acceptable. Uh, there is also the problem of corruption, but we should widen the perspective. Corruption here is not just the politicians, it's also the way business do business mm. in uh, uh, the Americas. And that has to do with the fact that uh, throughout the Americas, fiscal policy uh, has been a huge problem. So governments do not have enough uh, fiscal income that they can use in order to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, deliver in their promises to the electorate, uh, which is why they keep uh, relying on extractivism and so forth, making themselves uh, totally vulnerable to the volatility of, uh, you know, commodity markets. And that's a problem for both the, the, the right wing and the, and the left wing. I mean, it, it, Robin, it's a, it's, a, it's a theme we will address uh, later in the panel as well, because it is part of a, a wider uh, phenomenon or wider movement, I guess you could say, is happening across Latin America. But that that question of patience, is that a failure uh, among the voters, that is? Is that a failure of communication by Macri? Because he, his whole pitch was, um, I'm a sensible centre-right conservative candidate, uh, I will fix the economy, I will sort everything out. Did he fail to find a way to convince the Argentinian people, however, uh, this isn't going to be a one-term job? This is a big, big task. The problem, I think, is in Argentina, as in many, many other countries, is that people aren't very patient. And a, a, a politician who goes into an election saying, oh, this might take 10 or 15 years to turn around, isn't going to get elected. People want to hear that something is going to change quickly. And so they will vote for whoever most convincingly appears to promise that. The problem isn't just so much a failure of communication, it's a failure of delivery. If a politician is able to show voters that some things at least have got better, then they have at least a chance of winning re-election. The problem, I think, for Argentina is that nothing has got better or nothing significant has got better. I mean, Oscar, do you think, just before we move off Argentina and look at the rest of Latin America, that voters would be inclined to be more patient with the dual Fernandez ticket? And, and on that front, might Fernandez discover that Kirchner is rather more of a hindrance than a help? Because 
again, they can't present themselves as we're a whole fresh new thing. You might have to give us time. She's already had a crack at this. Absolutely. And I think one shouldn't count with the uh, patience of uh, the Argentinian electorate. Having said that, they know uh, not only Kirchner, but they know Peronism, at least uh, the the left wing kind of Peronism, much more. And they tend to uh, uh, trust it more than uh, uh, the sort of right wing strict neoliberalism. Again, you have to look at this in the context of what is happening elsewhere in the continent. What has failed is not communication, is not persuasion, is these are structural failures. The model is not working. And that's why they're moving towards those who have been critical of the model. Having said that, those whose uh, rhetoric has been critical now will also have to deliver. Robin Lustig and Oscar Huadiola Rivera will have more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. U.S. President Donald Trump has announced he is lifting sanctions on Turkey. They were imposed nine days ago over Ankara's offensive against Kurdish fighters in northern Syria. Trump's decision came after Russia and Turkey agreed to extend a ceasefire along the Syrian border. Lawyers for the former Nissan boss, Carlos Ghosn, have asked a court in Tokyo to dismiss all charges against him. Ghosn was arrested last year over claims of financial misconduct. His lawyers argue the case against him is politically motivated and that it should be thrown out of court. And it's been announced that China's ruling Communist Party will hold a key meeting of its senior leadership next week. There has been an unusually long delay since the last one, and it comes as Beijing's leaders continue to grapple with pressing issues, such as a slowing economy and political unrest in Hong Kong. Those are some of the stories we're following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Robin Lustig. Now, it will doubtless be little consolation to many Argentinians, but in the context of their continent, they are far from alone in their present discontent. There is or recently has been some variety of turmoil underway in Ecuador, Chile, Brazil, Mexico, Venezuela, Paraguay, Peru and Bolivia. Apologies to anyone I've left out. These tumults have their local quirks and causes, but if one generalization can be made about them and about South America as a whole, it is that the continent is infuriatingly persistently economically becalmed. It is, absurdly, given its natural and human wealth, the world's worst performing region where economic output is concerned. Um, Oscar, I'm sure there isn't a simple answer to the question of why, but what's a simplish answer? Well, uh, and I've written two books uh, uh, on this. Uh, you might say <laughs> there is a, just maybe yes. re- re- read, us, read us the dust covers. <laughs> there, is, <laughs> there is a simplish question, which I've already suggested. Uh, uh, you know, compare Chile, you know, the highest performing in the continent, $21,000 GDP per capita. Still, what's the problem? Stark. Uh, inequality. But the problem is structural because that inequality has been set in stone, written in the various constitutions. So what you have here is not just the failure of an economic model, but the failure of an economic model that was set in stone in uh, the political model so as to make it uh, uh, almost impossible to either reform or repeal and to shield it from uh, uh, the protest of peoples, which means that protest was to be expected because of... uh, 
of course, uh, what people, most people discover soon enough is that the system was rigged against them from the very outset. That's the, 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 the root of the discontent. And you missed Colombia, you missed Haiti, you missed, it's everywhere. <laughs> the hemisphere is exploding, also in the United States. So this is not just, uh, you know, South versus North. This is not just an exotic, you know, the kind of thing that happens in those exotic torrid zones of the world. This is exactly what is happening everywhere. The uh, forced choice that was, has, was imposed on people in the case of uh, the Americas, more or less after the 11th of September 1973, to give an exact date, is totally failing and people are fed up with it. Uh, that date, September 11th, 1973, Robin, is, of course, the, the coup d'etat in Chile that, that brought down Salvador Allende. Um, are, is it part of what we're witnessing, perhaps, not just the economic dysfunctions that, that Oscar delineates there, but I, I guess it, growing pains, not entirely the right word, but still part of that process of countries attempting to transition out of a dictatorship, especially military dictatorship, which is no easy process wherever it happens in the world. And are we perhaps forgetting that most of South America, well within living memory, uh, was governed exactly like that? I hesitate to give an answer because I haven't even written half a chapter of a book about this. <laughs> book sitting across the table from Oscar, but, but let me have a go. I mean, I think that's a bit too easy. I, I, I think it's perhaps more profitable to look at the issue of education in many of these countries. The education system, from, from the little that I know of the region, has been underinvested in for decades. And you can't have a flourishing economy with an undereducated population. Um, I remember, I mean, several visits I have made to Brazil, for example, which for many years had a government under President Lula absolutely determined to reduce social and economic inequality. And it did make some progress, but not enough. You still had an undereducated population. You still had enormous inequalities. And as we have now seen over the last few years, endemic, deeply ingrained corruption. And people aren't stupid. They see that that's happening. They see that their children aren't being given a fair chance, while those in power, both in industrial power and in political power, reap all the benefits. And they have had enough. In Brazil, we've seen what's happened with the election of Jair Bolsonaro. And in other countries, I think you're also seeing an end to people being prepared to put up with uh, lack of delivery, failed expectations and simple dishonesty from all the people who are in charge. Actually, that's a very good point. And it also explains why it's mostly the youth and students in particular who have been protesting in, you know, from the United States through Colombia to Chile. And you will see the protests uh, coming in Brazil very soon. I mean, mm. Bolsonaro has already said the army is ready, which is as ominous as it can sound. For the, in the case of Chile and or Colombia, it is the privatization, the whole privatization of education, which has led the youth to understand that their, their future has been foreclosed. They have been stolen of everything, health, uh, education and their future. So having nothing else to lose but their bullshit jobs, excuse my French, and half lives, they have risen up as uh, an army of the undead and they are ready to take on uh, uh, those whose uh, uh, promises uh, have not been delivered. And of course, you, I mean, you can actually extend this but beyond the region. I mean, if you look at the protests in Egypt, if you look at the protests in Iraq, right across the world, you see young people saying, you're not giving us a chance. The system as it exists is not fair to the new generations and we're not prepared to take it.
Just a final quick thought on this one, Oscar. Are there, if, if not an entire, or is there, if not an entire country anywhere in Latin America, then perhaps a state or a province or a, a city that that kind of serves as some sort of beacon? Are there are there parts where you can see a, an upward trajectory? Well, I would say there are incomplete examples. Bolivia is one. You know, the country is uh, uh, growing at 4%, you know, almost double that of Chile, mm. which is good enough. And is it has done so by uh, a combination of uh, social investment, uh, but still dependent upon extractivist uh, policies. And as we, uh, as we can see, that uh, is also divisive. Yes, those are beacons of hope. Uh, Brazil under Lula was clearly uh, 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 go, you know, making a lot of progress. But the problem is that the, both the elites and the middle classes of, of these countries are not ready to share, uh, not in the very least. When I spoke of uh, fiscal problems, well, what I meant is that the elites just do not pay their taxes. They prefer to move to Miami. They, they just go. That's the truth. Uh, but these are the, the same ones funding the, the patriotic nationalism of the Bolsonaros and the Uribes and the Macris of, of the Americas. That, ca- that cannot be acceptable. And that's also part and parcel of what we call corruption. Okay. well, finally, on today's news wrap, we go to Paris, specific, specifically, specifically, third time, specifically to the Louvre, as of today, playing host to even longer queues than usual. As we noted earlier, today sees the opening of an immense exhibition dedicated to Leonardo da Vinci, acknowledging the 500th anniversary of his death. Assembling the show, which includes items loaned by Queen Elizabeth II and Bill Gates, has been no straightforward task. A court case in Italy sought, and ultimately unsuccessfully, to thwart the loan of its star turn, the Vitruvian Man sketch. Uh, Robin, are you at all tempted to jump on the Eurostar to Paris and stand in a queue which probably stretches pretty much all the way back to Calais? I am tempted, but I won't, <laughs> because of what you say, because of the queues. Yes. I did actually last year jump on the Eurostar to Paris to go and visit an art exhibition, and I had a timed ticket which was going to guarantee me entry at a particular time, and I still stood outside in the freezing cold for over an hour waiting to get in. I mean, I think these blockbuster exhibitions are wonderful in one respect. They give a lot of people who wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to see some of the world's greatest art. But I just wish that the galleries which put on these exhibitions found a way more effectively to manage the crowds. It can't be that difficult to sell the tickets at the rate which enables people to go in, spend some time looking at the art and then go out again without having to wait hours and hours and hours. One other point which really does discourage me from going to these exhibitions. When you get in, there are so many people in there that you barely have a chance to see what it is you have come to see. I I do blame the galleries. I know they need to maximise their returns. I know that these things are hugely expensive to put on. But for goodness sake, if you want us to come, make it a more pleasurable experience. Oscar, what do you think? I mean, I I agree more or less entirely with all of that. The exhibition looks fantastic. I'm reminded that years ago, just by happenstance, I was in Seattle when there was quite a big exhibition of uh, Da Vinci's Codex Lester notebooks, which I think also from the collection of Bill Gates. And I think it had been going for a while or he just left it out there for people to wander through and look at. There was hardly anybody there and it was absolutely marvellous. And I, I feel very fortunate to have had that experience. But that's not 
going to be this. Does this strike you as an enjoyable afternoon out? Uh, no, not at all. And I uh, also tend to agree. We should actually be critical, you know, much more critical. These uh, exhibitions are blockbuster exhibitions. These are mainly for profit exhibitions, but that's not uh, uh, all the problem. They are also curatorially speaking, very questionable. The way in which the objects are put together, the way in which, for instance, immersive technologies uh, are not uh, put to a better use. We have seen better examples of this in Paris itself, during, you know, with the Impressionist exhibition, in which you were surrounded by the paintings and so on and so forth. Rather, here you have is, you know, private collectors lending some of their stuff uh, and, you know, is putting here in that corner, in that other corner, you cannot see anything because all you see is the heads of other people on their damn uh, phones with you know everybody taking selfies but it's also a, a deeper problem we are still looking at the renaissance as if it were a, a sort of uh, uniquely european experience and it wasn't da vinci giordano bruno uh, all of them they were in conversation with Ibn Sina, with averroes why can't we uh, uh, you know bring bring forth that spirit of uh, internationalism and transcontinentality, which is exactly what we need the most nowadays. Uh, Robin, final thought on this. Uh, Oscar mentions phones. I have not been able to discover what they're planning to do about them at this exhibition, but can we at least agree that anybody who takes photos of anything with their phone at a major art exhibition should be flogged with a knotted rope? Uh, well, I'm a peaceful sort of chap, so I wouldn't, of course, recommend <laughs> any such brutal um, response. But I think phones should be confiscated from people when they enter art galleries. They can. Are live you in favour of giving them back afterwards? Uh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they behave themselves properly. Yes. I, I, yeah. I let, let me just say this: I have been to one stunning art ex ex exhibition this week here in London. Unfortunately, it's only on for a couple more days. The Dale Chihuly glass sculptures in the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew mm. Gardens. A huge open space, glass sculptures in the open absolutely stunning you can spend as long as you like looking at them and there was plenty of space all around them but of course it wasn't a blockbuster mm. in, in the way that these things are one other thing I will say very quickly and I'm reluctant to give a tip to people the best way I have found of seeing these exhibitions is to go in as late in the afternoon as you can 4.30 5 o'clock in the afternoon all the coach tours have gone all the school <laughs> parties have gone you have a chance of spending 30 or 45 seconds in front of a world to answer your question Andrew I would invite those who use phones to test Da Vinci's flying machine. <laughs> See how it goes. With a one-way ticket. Oscar Guardiola Rivera and Robin Lustig, thank you both very much for joining us. In a moment, the latest opinion from our editorial floor. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. And finally today, Monocle's executive editor, Josh Fennett, looks at why new findings on the effect bad lighting can have on our health ought to be a switch off for all of us. Dim 
bad lighting takes a heavy toll on the health of living things, according to a new report in an online journal entitled Aging and Mechanisms of Disease. The peer-reviewed paper's findings suggest that exposure to LED light disrupts sleep patterns, speeds up aging and increases stress in organisms. At least it did among the obliging fruit flies that were tested. Are you surprised, though? Aren't we all at least dimly aware of the negative effects brought on by strip-lit supermarkets? No one feels good in the overlit bluish pool cast by energy-saving bulbs or backlit screens either. And obviously this isn't purely an aesthetic issue, but there is such thing as a flattering light. More importantly, better lighting should be discussed when we create homes, offices, shops and airports. They should be places that feel cosy and make us feel well. Architects and industrial designers have long had a knack for getting the light right, even though LED bulbs cast a less appealing glow than their incandescent cousins. Some still have supposedly bright ideas about design, but miss the glaringly obvious merits of sidelights and of shade. To offer them some counsel, first uttered long before this peer-reviewed flypaper demonstrated the dark side of overdoing lighting. Where there are no shadows, there will be no beauty. So wrote Japanese author Junichiro Tanasaki in 1933. No need to turn to an insect for proof then. You already know it's time for a switch. Or, might we suggest, a dimmer. That was Josh Fennett, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. Music.